the people when I talked to people about Six Sigma, they thought the creativity stuff was, you know, a little nutty, kind of like marketing. This is what the marketing does. And <laughs> the people, my creativity friends, when I talked to them about Six Sigma, they would just roll their eyes. I mean, they just did not want to hear about it at all. Uh, it got, actually got worse the more I got into lean, you know, kind of went on from six, six, six Sigma to lean and the creativity people were like, oh, that's just that total quality management stuff. That's so old hat. Um, you know, it, these things have nothing to do with each other. So I was always felt that I was, that I just didn't fit in. Hi everyone, I'm Tracy O'Rourke. And I'm Elizabeth Swan. And we are from the Just In Time Cafe and welcome to our podcast. At the cafe, we wrestle with tough questions, talk to thought leaders, discuss great books, and get insights from Lean Six Sigma practitioners. We let you in on the latest apps, we bring you the news, and we challenge the status quo so you can build your problem solving muscles. Hey, Elizabeth, the cafe is buzzing. What is on today's menu? It is buzzing. Today's highlight is our interview with Bella Engelbach, whose new book, Creatively Lean, guides problem solvers to be better innovators. And for our hot app segment, we'll cover one of the virtual whiteboards that people are buzzing about since they can't gather around flip charts right now. And for Q&A, we'll answer a question about alternatives to a controversial word, countermeasure. <laughs> I think you created that controversy. I think I did. It's a great day at the cafe, Tracy, don't you say? I'd say so. Up next, it's hot apps. It's actually been around for 10 years, but COVID put this app on the map. Uh, no flip chart, no problem. Although we miss those things, along with real-life post-it notes. I so miss post-it notes. Yes, we are missing those things almost as much as we're missing people. Even though we've been forced to work online begrudgingly, there are silver linings. One of those silver linings is for us is learning new things and finding innovative ways to enhance engagement. One of the apps that puts more engagement in virtual meetings and less wah-wah is Mural, M-U-R-A-L. Mural is an online collaborative whiteboard tool that makes virtual and even asynchronous collaboration easy, fun, and engaging. My favorite part is the simplicity and ease of sending someone a visitor link so they can pop right into the board. No fuss, no muss. They don't have to do anything. They don't have to download anything. They don't even need to enter their real name or provide an email if they don't want to. This is really important because there's a lot of companies with firewalls or other security issues that create red tape hurdles to get into the software. And that's also the time people have to spend learning how to use new apps, which is non-value add for most people. It's clear Mural thought this through, and I am very happy with that. So we use Mural for UC San Diego's Lean Six Sigma Leader course. What did you think of that tool, Elizabeth? I totally appreciated it. I have grown so used to not being in a classroom. I forgot like the simple pleasure of watching people write their thoughts on post-it notes. I keep coming back to post-it notes, but that was like the live interaction between us and our classroom. Uh, there were moments when it felt like when you and I were training uh, the leadership class that we were in a hive and everybody was working intensely. 
and I missed that buzz of human brains. Uh, we were all working on the mural board together, so it felt immediate, and the discussion just simply flowed, and it seemed like it just facilitated that discussion. Yes. I've also used it for the live instructor Greenbelt course I'm teaching at UC San Diego, and I've used it for collaboration activities for all the phases of DMAIC and PDCA in collaboration with Zoom for breakout rooms, and the, and the students didn't skip a beat. They're in there, they're using it, applying the tools for DMAIC and PDCA and engaging in the activities in Mural. There's lots of whiteboard apps that are popping up out there too, like Lucid, Lucidchart, Miro, M-I-R-O, and Microsoft Teams I hear has one too. And also something important to note, especially if you're a consultant like us, they do offer some discounted rates, Miro does. It's called their consultant network. So if you are a consultant and you wanna use Mural, go to their consultant network link and you, you'll probably get a discount and you better hurry up before they change their mind. Or maybe you should become a consultant. <laughs> yes. I'm Elizabeth Swan and you're listening to the Just In Time Cafe podcast. In a short while, you get to hear our, our interview with Bella Engelbach and you find out how a request from an audience member at a conference is what led her to write her book. Next up, it's a question we'd like to pose to our listeners. The word solution is considered too limiting for process improvement, but is there a better word than countermeasure? Our colleague Karen Ross asked a group of us what words we didn't like, and this was one of mine. And I was surprised at how much I've come to avoid this word. And one of my issues that I've one of my issues is that I have worked my entire 30 plus years in this industry to make process improvement accessible and approachable to students, people I'm coaching, in a whole organizations I'm working with. I steer clear of acronyms. I used English words instead of Japanese or in addition. Uh, and I, I, what I find is that this word does not resonate with people. They don't get it. And they get stuck on counter, you know, counter to what? Uh, what are we measuring? And the time I spend explaining, this feels like a waste to me. And you often, actually, you use the phrase, you know, you like to meet people where they are. And I like using words that people get, and they get solution. So I simply add the word potential, since it might not be the end-all, be-all solution. I also like experiments because there's adventure in experimenting. And, you know, you and I are trying something out or uh, the process improvement, the problem solvers are trying something out. So when I posted this online, I found a lot of people in the continuous improvement community who don't like countermeasure either for similar reasons. And mm -hmm. one alternative I had not heard before, uh, which I liked is intervention. And I'm toying with that now since it's a more intuitive word. Uh, so anyway, I've You've heard me rant about this already, <laughs> but what do you think about it? You know, I think what's interesting about what you said is we're with people that are brand new to process improvement a lot. So we're, you know, I, a lot of my students, they've never had any Lean Six Sigma training before. And so I have seen their reaction to the word countermeasure as well. And I do have to explain it. And I do use countermeasure and I do explain it to my students. 
and why the lean community prefers it to solution. It's again, it's not my favorite word. I don't have as strong as a reaction as you do, but I do like experiments and solutions better than countermeasures. If I had, if someone asked me, there seems to be the same amount of explanation around using solutions that may not, you know, it's just saying, well, it's not a permanent solution versus using countermeasure and explaining why that's less permanence. Uh, and so I do end up using them interchangeably regularly. Uh, Tracy, the debate is raging on. <laughs> I'm curious to see what other people have said. And I think according to your LinkedIn, it was showing that people really do like experiment a lot. And I really use that a lot too, because it does sound fun and adventurous and an experiment. Let's experiment with it. <laughs> I'm Tracy O'Rourke. And you're listening to the Just In Time Cafe podcast. We'll be hosting these monthly. So don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Coming up next, it's our featured guest, Bella Engelbach. Tracy, can you give us a little background on Bella? Yes. Bella Engelbach is the president and lead consultant at Lean for Humans Incorporated. They blend lean and creativity, helping organizations and individuals achieve innovative results. She's a certified professional coach. She has been applying continuous improvement and lean thinking to operations and R&D for what she says between 14 and 100 years. Arranged. <laughs> She uses really good facial moisturizer, a, a creative problem solving facilitator. She also is, she is a member of, of the board of directors of the lean product and process development exchange for the last six years. And as you had mentioned already, she's the author of creatively lean, how to get out of your own way and drive innovation throughout your organization, which I can't wait to talk to her about. She loves to share the voice of fellow lean thinkers in her podcast, The Edges of Lean. You think we'll get on that one? <laughs> yeah, we will. Elizabeth and I would like to welcome Bella Engelbach to the cafe today. How are you, Bella? I am doing just great. And thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm super happy to have you on our podcast. It must be interesting being on someone else's podcast when you have your own podcast. Well, every time I do this, I learn something from what the other podcaster does. So that's great. And you two are a lot of fun to be with. So I'm really looking forward to this. Me too. Well, let's talk about your book first. What compelled you to write a book, first of all? Well, funny story, I actually was asked to write the book, which is kind of what compelled me. People had been asking me for years or saying to me for years and kind of in a joking way. So when are you going to write your book, Bella? And I said, ah, I don't know. Uh, I might write a book, but I wasn't actually sure what to write about. And um, I happened to be at a conference and I presented on the topic that is included in the book, uh, which is the use of a creative problem solving tool in uh, a lean environment. And there was a publisher in the audience and afterwards he emailed me and he said that would make a great book. And it just so happened that at that time I was leaving my big corporate job and I had the time to write the book. Um, so things kind of came together and I had a chance to write it. And it was a really interesting experience because there were a lot of things that I had been thinking and practicing and the act of having to sit down and actually write the book and think through and explain things, um, you know, on a page uh, really actually helped me solidify uh, some of the, the things that I had been doing as part of my um, improvement practice um, in my work. So, Bella, why a book about creativity? 
Well, one of the things that happened to me as I was learning different approaches to process improvement was that I was also learning creative problem solving as a methodology. And in fact, they, those things kind of happened at the same time for me. Um, I was working for um, a big pharmaceutical company in the research and development organization. And we um, there was a corporate initiative around Six Sigma and um, you know, somebody from corporate came to me and, and said to me, my little process improvement department, you need to be following this methodology, Six Sigma. Now, at the same time, it also happened that uh, in research and development, obviously there's a huge interest in innovation. So there were people who were coming in to teach us innovation practices and to learn the language of innovation and tools and approaches around innovation. And these two things actually happened to me pretty much at the same time, I was sort of getting the Six Sigma training at the same time that I was also starting to really become aware of creative, creative problem solving. And frankly, it was a huge um, uh, issue for me because it was very hard to reconcile those two ways of thinking, the way they were being taught to me. But at the same time, I realized that they were both about essentially uh, learning cycles for solving problems. The language is very, very different. Um, so the approaches are very, very different. Um, and so I spent a lot of time just trying to understand, well, how do these two things work together? They both appear to have value. And the people, when I talked to people about Six Sigma, they thought the creativity stuff was, you know, a little nutty, kind of like marketing, that's the stuff that marketing does. And <laughs> the people, my creativity friends, when I talked to them about Six Sigma, they would just roll their eyes. I mean, they just did not want to hear about it at all. Uh, it got, actually got worse the more I got into lean, you know, kind of went on from six, six, six Sigma to lean and the creativity people were like, oh, that's just that total quality management stuff. That's so old hat. Um, you know, it, these things have nothing to do with each other. So I was always felt that I was, that I just didn't fit in. Um, mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's kind of been a passion of mine to, to figure out and how do we get the best of all of this so that we can solve problems. And that's really- Yes, very nice. I think the other thing that struck me about your title is part of your title is how to get out of your own way. So tell mm -hmm. us, how have you seen people get in their own way when it comes to creativity? Well, I think there are, you know, there are lots of ways that we can get in our own way. And, and this book is specifically, it's about a middle manager, which I think is kind of a neglected uh, personality when you come to business books. You know, there are books who are written, that are written for CEOs as if we're all CEOs. Um, and most of us are not CEOs and there are you know, books that are written for individuals, but not a lot for, for middle managers and middle managers are in this really hard place because you, you know, you have things from corporate that you have to implement, not all mm -hmm. of which you always completely understand, but you know, you've got to implement them. And then you have the people that you're trying to support and develop and um, you got to where you were by behaving in a certain way. And one of the things I think that happens as you step into that middle management role is you start to feel this need to really control things. And that need to control things because you know senior management is going to come to you and is going to hold you accountable for things. Um, and the fact that you now have people working for you who you are suddenly discovering don't behave and think the way that you behave 
and think, and now you have to induce them somehow to do the things you want them to do, means that, that a lot of middle managers kind of, um, you know, clamp down on things and, and hold on to things. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to creativity, and when you're in that place, I've got, I've got to hold on to things, I've got to keep things stable, you know, I've got to, my department has to deliver for the company, so on and so forth. What that can do is that can make you super reactive when it comes to innovation. It feels like there's not much room for innovation. Mm-hmm. And you can also feel, and this is just sort of a personal reflection for myself when I was in that position, you can also feel that um, perhaps your ideas are the best ones, right? But the best ideas, as we lean thinkers know, are probably coming from the people at the front line. You know, you say I kind of have to step away and say, and allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. So, um, so to get out of your own way, you have to recognize that being in control doesn't actually mean being in control. Uh-huh. And being in control um, may not may or may not be necessary, but what's really important is that you're creating an environment that allows um, creativity to flourish, that allows divergent thinking to happen, that actually encourages it, and that um, that it's okay to be that way. You don't have to be in, in control all, all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very nice. I really like that. Yeah. Um- so it's, it's a, it really, you can feel the, um, what do you call it? The, you're bumping up against, you know, both control and innovation, which just don't go together, right? Um, did, do you have some um, examples of how you were able to help middle managers get out of their way, sort of let go of control? Yeah, so I think the first thing, um, I, I'm, let me, uh, I want to th- make sure I'm thinking of, of a presenting good example, but I'll talk about me, okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm getting out of your way. <laughs> I am getting out, of, getting out of my way, and I actually tell this story in the book. And um, uh, I, I never know when I tell this story whether the person it's about is listening. Um, but this story is about a time when I was uh, sitting in my office and uh, behind my desk with my window and my door. And an employee comes up and knocks on the door, um, as was the custom in my company. And it came in and said, Bella, I have a really uh, great idea I want to talk to you about. And I realized that this person was very, very excited about, about the idea. And I had been doing innovation training, like so I know what I was supposed to do. When somebody comes in and says, hey, I have an idea you were supposed to say, that's great tell me more you know you want to hear more about the idea so so he comes in and he says all right so my my buddy and i we've been going around and we've been looking at um the space utilization in this building and we've noticed that you know so i can't remember exactly what is some percentage of the offices are empty most of the time and and i think that we we would like to propose that we move to a more of an open office hoteling um plan because that would mean that we could actually save the company a lot of money all right so what's happening in my brain what's happening in my brain and i didn't realize it at the time was fear and part of the fear was i realized as i reflected on it later was that i had worked really hard to have that office with a desk and the window and the door that somebody could knock on, you know, that that was actually part of, of, of my being in control. 
that I had, I had that space and it signified some kind of status and being a woman in a corporation, um, you know, I had worked hard to get that. And uh, so he comes in and he has this idea and now, okay, flash forward to the future. We all know that's the way the company went, right? And he wasn't the only person with that idea. And, and of course the company now is there's mostly, of course with COVID, everybody's working from home. Yeah. But at the time it was a pretty unusual idea. Mm -hmm. So what happened to me was that I felt this like inside. I actually felt my gut, you know, and my gut told me it was a terrible idea. And that was what came out of my mouth. I said, that is the worst idea I've ever heard. And then you should see, yeah, Tracy is just like, I can't believe it. All right. I'm trained, Tracy. I am trained in innovation. I am trained to not do that. But my body took over because it was, it was like, it was impacting me. So the middle manager I had to work on was Bella, first of all, the very, you know, the very first thing. And I had to really understand that when I did that, first of all, I was violating everything I had been taught. But the second thing was, and this was the more dangerous part of it. When I did that, I actually created, I could have created for this person, a, a bad association with bringing their manager an idea. Right? So mm -hmm. he came to me with an idea. What did Bella do? Bella was like, that was the worst idea I, I have ever heard. And then immediately I, I started to come up with reasons why it was the worst idea, you know? And, and I could think of some reasons pretty fast, you know, well, we won't be able to talk to each other anymore, blah, blah, blah. You know, I had all kinds of, of reasons, but none of them were intellectual reasons. They were coming out of fear. So when I have been... I know talking to people in that position, uh, you know, after that, one of the things that I told them is, is it's very important to pay attention to what your body is telling you. Literally, what your gut is telling you may may not be true. It may be based on a, you know, maybe a fear-based reaction, um, you know, from, you know, for some something that you're not even aware of. Your body's going to tell you something. You need to listen to it, but you don't necessarily have to believe it. And so that's, you know, that's one of the things, you know. In, in just in, in anyone, I mean, you're getting comfortable with innovation. It's just you felt every single time that you hear an idea that gives you that eh feeling where you feel your gut tighten, that is probably an idea that is impacting you in some way. And you, you need to recognize that and step out of the way and allow the idea to move forward. It may or may not be a good idea. We don't know. But that fear-based reaction is, you know, it really can, can get in your way. I think what was interesting about, well, the whole story was interesting, but what also uh, was intriguing was you cited cultural elements of where you were working at that time, right? I worked hard for that office. I wanted people to knock because that's what people did in your organization. And so there's this cultural element that has a huge impact on how people are trained to react and how they actually react, which I think is really interesting. And I'd love to hear more about this because you applied process improvement in R&D, which is kind of an interesting place to apply process improvement. So I'd love to hear about your experience, how it went applying process improvement in R&D. So tell us a little bit about that. So R&D, first of all, and this is the hard thing for some for people to understand sometimes is not manufacturing. Um, and that, and so that was the th that was one of the things 
that um, that made uh, our initial forays into a process improvement methodology with six, with six Sigma really difficult. And part of the problem was that we had folks coming from manufacturing to teach us who expected it to be like manufacturing. So obviously it's not. And the hallmark I think of, of a research and development environment is that rather than creating a thing, you're actually creating knowledge. You're building, you're, what you're building is knowledge. It might be knowledge of what a new product product is or knowledge of how you make a new product or in the case of a pharmaceutical company and in the case of a pharmaceutical no company, knowledge about the product and how it works and how it's been tested that you need to transmit to regulatory authorities like the FDA so you can get it approved. But it's all about actually creating knowledge. It's not about making a physical thing that, you know, that goes through a plant or even a piece, piece of software at the end, you know, that has code and, you know, this is my software, but as you know, you have the code written. Um, and so that, that means that most of what you're doing is actually, you know, paper-based, you do it on a computer, it's intangible. Even the stuff that you're doing in a laboratory, for example, ends up with data and the data over time accumulates and becomes knowledge. So what you are working to improve is actually the flow and retention of knowledge. So if you come into it thinking that it's really about say, how am I gonna move the paper along? You're only gonna make small improvements. Um, the bigger improvements are gonna be in if you're really understanding how are you creating knowledge in how you're doing the learning and then how you actually using that knowledge and retaining it so that you don't have to relearn things that you learned before. So, and I didn't really understand that even though my whole career was in research and development, honestly, I didn't really understand that until I had been doing it for a while. So a typical thing that happens in R&D when somebody comes in and starts to do improvement in R&D is they go to the labs because labs look like places where you can do a lot of improvement. And that was actually where we started. Um, we started with the labs and you can do you can do improvements in labs that kind of look like improvements you do in manufacturing. So you can you can level the flow of the work. Or you can you know can level the work. You can work on flow. You can do all kinds of things, you know, cool things with Kanban, with supplies. Um, there's a lot of stuff that you can do that you can sort of you know, bring in directly from something like the Toyota production system, if you're looking at, at a tool level. But in the end, it's not gonna necessarily get great products to the market faster, right? Um, you sort of, you're just, you're, you're optimizing pieces of the process. So it took me a long time. It was sort of this translation that I was having to go through in my head. So somebody's coming from manufacturing, they're telling me this about how we improve things. And of course, then I was also, you know, had the creativity stuff and the innovation stuff. I was really trying to figure out how did it all come together? So for me, the, the, I had this huge aha moment uh, and I was at um, a conference. Uh, it was a conference called, uh, I think, Lean Six Sigma and Pharmaceutical R&D. Uh, I remember it very clearly because it was in Tampa in January or February. I know there was a big snowstorm going on at home. So half my mind was about, is my flight actually to be able to take me back to Philadelphia? Or do I get to spend more time in Tampa, another day in Tampa? 
but we have, you know, we, we have presented a really good lab project. Um, we did, you know, done some really excellent, it was a lean project in a lab and really, really good work and have improved the lab immensely. And have actually made a big difference, um, you know, to the overall process, because it was a lab that was kind of the end of the, the drug development process. And I was sitting there, I was thinking about this, um, and uh, Terry Barnhart was facilitating a discussion at the end of the conference. Um, and uh, I remember it suddenly came to me that we were all doing essentially the same thing, which was improving labs or, or improving a regulatory affairs process, but none of us was actually improving research and development. So I, I put up my hand and I said that and everyone looked at me like I had three heads. And I don't know what the answer was. I knew I only knew what the question was, you know, that we just were not, that whatever we were doing was cosmetic. It was on the surface. It wasn't gonna, it wasn't gonna make a really big difference to, in our case to getting better drugs on the market faster, um, not in the long run. Um, so, but, so this idea was like in my head. So I went home and um, got in the office the next day and opened up Google and typed in, uh, I think I typed in lean and product development and a book came up. It was Michael Kennedy's book called um, Product Development for the Lean Organization. So I ordered the book and um, uh, read the book, uh, which just blew my mind. And then um, I tracked Michael down. I can't remember. I think I called LEI. I called um, University of Michigan. I called this place. I said, said, how do I get hold of Michael Kennedy? Um, and what Michael was talking about was uh, you really have to be working on the flow of knowledge in product development. You cannot just focus on, on you know, doing these sort of surface improvements. And um, then, so then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm all, all fired up about this and I go to my, you know, I go to my boss. And fortunately I had a, I had a boss who was not like me, he was a better boss than, than I was. And he didn't say, Bella, that is a really terrible idea. He actually encouraged me to pursue my interest and, and learn more about it. And, um, uh, you know, to go to the, actually what turned out to, to be, I don't know it was the first or the second um, Lean Product and Process Development Exchange Conference. And I met all of those, the folks who were doing that. And then I had to spend a lot of time figuring out, well, what did that mean for pharmaceutical research and development, which is actually, you know, different from most other R&D processes because it's really long and, you know, pretty hard and highly regulated. So I, I kind of been all over the place with, the, with my answer. Um, here's what we learned in the end, um, that in order to make that kind of change in an organization, as, as if, you know, everybody knows, you have to have um, leadership who is willing to get into it and make, uh, make changes themselves. And one of the things that happens in a large organization is that there's a lot of um, change at the leadership levels and particularly the organization I was in, um, that, you know, really wants to make sure that leaders have a lot of different management experiences so they get moved around a lot. So, so it seemed like every time we got a leader, you know, ready to try something uh, or we got something really moving forward, then there'd be a, a little reorg or a big reorg and a change in the organization and we'd start all over again. So that was sort of my big my big learning from doing it in a big company is um, it's very fruitful and also pretty hard. Um, your description just reminded me of something that came up today. Uh, 
it's it's an old joke, although I think it probably comes from some parable. But it's um, th there's a guy outside of a bar searching for uh, his car keys. Um, it's late in the evening. He's been at the bar for a while. Somebody else comes out. Another patron comes out, sees him searching, uh, you know, under the street lamp for the part, the car keys, and says, "Well, well I'm going to help help you." So the two of them are searching under the lamp, and finally, after you know, time goes by, and he can't. Neither one of them are finding the keys, and he says, "Are you sure they're in this area? You lost them here." And he goes, "Oh no, I lost them way over there, but the light's better, much much better here." <laughs> And what you described was, you know, you taught, they got taught this method, you know, to, uh, that came from manufacturing and, you know, is uh, really comes from visible, tangible processes. So everybody decided to focus on the labs. Um, and then you had that epiphany, like, oh my God, we're not looking at the knowledge flow. We're not looking, you know, we're looking where the light's good. <laughs> we're not looking at the, invisible process and Tracy always uses that term that I really like that some processes are invisible um anyway that's a great what a great uh series of events though that got you to make those connections to reach out um and to and to forge your way ahead so that's that's impressive so just thinking about what you've been exposed to because uh you've got a, now a great breadth of innovation uh Six Sigma using Demaic, I'm assuming, unless it was designed mm -hmm. for Six Sigma, but it sounds like it was Demaic. Um, uh, the lean training, which is uh, got, you know, the PDCA camp, and then there's the, you know, the, the Kata practice camp. Um, what are your thoughts on the different root cause analysis methods out there? You know, it... I've kind of distilled it for myself down to this. And that, that, that is that there are a ton of ways to solve problems. And it's like anything else, you know, some days you want an evening gown and some days you want sweats, right? You know, it's all clothes, right? But it's, you, you're gonna need things, different things for different times. So I think it's important to know what are the, the, so the, the scope and the limitations of different methodologies and, and different tools. Um, to me, it comes down to a few simple things. First of all, it's about learning cycles. And whether you call your learning cycle Demaic or you call your learning cycle designed for Six Sigma or you call your learning cycle PDCA or PDSA in in lean part development, we talk about Lambda, which is look, ask, model, discuss, act. It's another learning cycle. In CPS, creative problem solving, there are also learning cycles in creative problem solving. So the first is to recognize that no matter what you do, it's some kind of a learning cycle. And if you're not looking at what you do as a learning cycle, or as I like, I like to call it, an experiment, then the only way things are going to work for you is if you're in a purely 100% execution mode and every all your problems have already been solved and nothing's going to change. Otherwise, you have to be doing some kind of learning cycle. Um, I think if you are in a situation where there is a lot of change, as we were in R&D, in, in a lot of change because you're taking on new projects, you're 
going to be working, you know, using different platforms, things like that, that you got to struggle, at least we struggled with Demaic. Um, and part of the reason for that was because there wasn't always a lot to measure. And I'm with the, with the non-tangible stuff, it's even harder to figure out what am I going to measure. And then when you get to control, you may only be sort of in control for a short period of time because once you have put a new product on the market, you want another new product. So whatever you had thought you were in control of, you, you know, you need to let go of that. And, um, you know, so control is a concept in R&D is, kind of, is a kind of a higher concept. And design for Six Sigma, um, you know, I think, you know, again, it's, it's, it's learning cycles there, but there's, I think there's still, if I remember it correct, correctly with the mad V it's, it's, um, uh, if it, to me, it feels like it's a little bit backwards. Um, I mean, to me, it's really, it's about, it's about put your learning cycles first. So it's more test and learn, um, as opposed to design something and then verify, I think verify at the end to me is, is, in the wrong place, verify yeah. needs to be start happening, you know, at the yeah. beginning, right? Um, and, and, you know, there's all kinds of great reasons for that, including the fact that you don't want to have a big, big verification cycle at the end of your process and discover you made, you know, a bad mistake at the beginning, because that's how people end up with, you know, new Coke, you know, things, you know, <laughs> you put it on the market, oh my gosh, you know, we went through all of our verification process. We just forgot to verify this very important thing, like are people going to like the taste? Or how wedded are they to the old Coke? So, um, but it's still a learning, it's, a, it's, still, it's still learning cycles. Um, so pick your learning cycle, the one that's, that's appropriate for the situation that you're in and, and, and don't be, you know, I think when you start to be like really doctrinaire about it, you can, you can, you, you spend more time worrying about, about that than worrying about, actually getting the work done. But the most important thing to me is um, as you are going through whatever learning cycle you're using to recognize that there are these points where you can have divergent thinking, where you need to think broadly. Elizabeth, you and I have talked about this quite a bit, right? So you, you need to think broadly, um, whether that is, you know, an actual brainstorming session or whether you are thinking broadly all by yourself, but you need to, you have to think broadly. And then there are these points where you must think kind of convergently. And there are so many wonderful tools in Lean and Six Sigma for convergent thinking, for making selections, choosing what you move forward with. So divergent, convergent, and then the most important thing if you are working with the knowledge flow is to recognize, now I've created a piece of knowledge, where is that gonna go, right? And that's where I think a lot of organizations, a lot of people fail um, is because you've learned something, the biggest waste, well, two, two really huge wastes in product development. One is to put a product on the market you spend a lot of money and time on and nobody buys it. That's a huge, that's the biggest waste of all, you know, that's why, that's why improving a lab doesn't make a difference. Um, um, and then the second thing is if you learn something and then somebody else has to go learn the same thing. And, and that's how Toyota, you know, going back to sort of the, the roots of lean, that's how Toyota um, is, you know, is really emulated as a company for product development because Toyota has managed to figure out how they learn what they learned and keep their learning. 
Mm. Um, and it's, um, you know, it's a little mysterious how they do that, but we know it involves A3s and filing cabinets and, um, and how they train people, you know, and, and particularly how they train their chief engineers so the chief engineers um, know where to go to find the knowledge that they need. Um, so that they are very consistent in their product development process. So, um, yeah, so to me, it's about, you know, pick the learning cycle that's right. Make sure you recognize when you are need to think divergently, when you th need to think convergently. And then once you've learned something, either as an individual, as an organization, make sure you don't lose it because it's a big waste to mm -hmm. relearn things. Right? Yes, I, we are in agreement. We are we can appreciate all of the different tools and techniques from each camp, if you will, right? Demea camp and Six Sigma camp and Lean camp and Kata camp. But really, ultimately, it's really figuring out what is applicable in the problem that you're trying to solve, because there's lots of ways to go about it. And I like the idea of being open to different approaches, because just tying to only one isn't going to sort of limiting, if you will. So I appreciate your perspective on that. And I can't believe we're already out of time. Darn it. So Bella, we just wanted to say thanks for coming to the cafe. Thank you. Uh, thanks. I enjoyed it. And uh, can I have um, an extra tall, extra hot latte, please? <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth, whip that up for him. I'm on it. <laughs> Thank you. And so where can people reach you if they're interested in reaching out to you, Bella? They can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Bella Engelbach, E-N-G-L-E-B-A-C-H. Um, I'm always there on LinkedIn. Or you can email me at bella.engelbach at leanforhumans, all one word, dot com, leanforhumans.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for your contributions. And um, I'm sure that you've inspired many today. Well, you've inspired me. Thanks so much for having me. See you, Bella. Come back to the cafe again. I will. Stay tuned for registration information for our upcoming guest webinar on March 4th with the vision board queen herself, Deandra Wardell. Can't wait for that. And if you haven't already, definitely sign up for Elizabeth's webinar on March 18th titled How Lean Six Sigma Problem Solvers Can Hone Their People Skills. That is going to be awesome. <laughs> you know it will. And tune in for next month's episode where we interview lean icon Jeffrey Liker about the second edition of the Toyota Way, where he incorporates Mike Rother's Toyota Kata practice into this seminal book. And from March 18th through the 15th, Elizabeth and I are going to attend Lean Frontiers KataCon 7 in our pajamas. It's the first pajama pants summit. And if you're interested and you have some hip nightwear, register for what could be the last virtual version of this popular conference. Stay tuned for all the news by joining our community at the jitcafe.com. That's J-I-T. C-A-F-E dot com. We're so happy to be back and we are thrilled that you've joined us at the Just In Time Cafe. Feels like we never left. And we hope you enjoyed your jolt of lean caffeine. <laughs>